Hello again, and welcome to episode 29 of In Gear with the Shop. I'm your host, Reagan Dickinson. We're pleased to welcome Chris Brown, designer extraordinaire and owner of Brown Auto Design in Irvine, California. Chris has been a fixture in our industry for more than 20 years as an award-winning designer, speed shop general manager, marketing director at the Peterson Automotive Museum, and his most recent accolade for his design and production work on this year's Battle of the Builders winner at SEMA. Given that resume, we're super excited to get in gear with Chris. But before we do, let's spend a few minutes with Tony Zeal, global training manager for this episode's sponsor, C-Tech, where we'll learn something about the importance of battery charging. Hey, Tony, great to have you on board here. And I think the question that a lot of shops have is, uh, how can they educate their customers about the need, especially in these days, for battery chargers? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, the demands that are placed on modern vehicles absolutely skyrocketed over the last few years. Mm-hmm. If you look at the same basic technology, the lead-acid battery, it's just over 160 years old. And only recently have we seen several changes to the basic structure of the lead-acid battery. You now have gel batteries, AGM, ECM, EFB batteries. Yep. All lead-acid, but they're designed to cope with different demands on a a modern vehicle. Back in the mid-'90s, we had one or two ECUs, or electronic control units on a vehicle, small computers. By 2005, that had risen to 72 2014, there were over 100 ECUs on a vehicle. And now 2019, the latest figures that were done, there were over 200 computers on a modern vehicle. The Bentley Continental, now that's a little bit out of my wage range, but it has five miles of wiring inside that vehicle, over 2,300 circuits and over 92 computers on board. We just demand so much from the electrical system on a modern vehicle. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things I'm wondering, too, from uh, is, is it a good idea not only for a shop to have their own battery chargers to service their customers, but is that something that they can sell to their customers on a kind of a retail basis? Or even if they don't have retail, maybe it's just some, uh, just a product that they can sell to their, to their customer. Well, the research we've done um, in Sweden and the U.K., In 2013, we had independent workshops test vehicles for us. Every vehicle that came in, whether it was a bulb check or tire check, didn't matter. Check the battery. They found that 25% of the vehicles entering their workshop needed some sort of attention for the battery. It Mm -hmm. either needed a recharge or was on the verge of collapse. By 2018 that had risen to 51% of vehicles entering the workshop. So there's a massive opportunity to ensure the quality of your brand. If you've got a customer come in, put the vehicle on charge, offer it as a service to the customer. Right. Put a point of sale display. Coming from a charging company, uh, which CTEC are, we advocate whenever you get the opportunity, charge whenever you can. By doing that, there's every chance you'll extend the life of that battery by up to three times. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds like a value to me and I appreciate your time today, Tony. That's not a problem. Thank you for having me on. Hey, thanks again to Tony and C-Tech. And now it's time to get in gear with Chris Brown. Uh, Well, Chris, I uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us today. And I was 
very excited to talk to you, you know, as I read about your background and, and everything that you've been involved in over the years. Um, just about everything in this industry, I think, is fantastic. So, um, but what I wanted to start with today, Chris, is uh, Battle of the Builders from SEMA this year. Uh, you know, so exciting to get back in person and actually have a a live winner of the Battle of the Builders. And as I understand it, you were the designer on this project, the 1955 Chevy Bel Air. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Yes, I, I uh, did all the design work on the project and was the project manager too. Okay, and this was this is a vehicle owned by uh, Robert uh, Matranga, um, and apparently he's a, he's a collector, and you've worked with him in the past as well. So you know, this is a this to me looked like a pretty extensive project. And can you can you give me an overview of how it came about and what it took to get this um, this done and in shape to be a Battle of the Builder winner? We literally redesigned everything on the car um, down to the last nut, bolt, clip, uh, bracket, you name it. We did something to it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was uh, by far the most um, complicated project I've ever had the pleasure to work on, um, but also probably the most rewarding. You know, I mean, the whole thing was a challenge, and that's what made it fun. So we started with an Art Morrison chassis, which had Kugel independent front and rear suspension, and that that worked for the initial idea that he had for the car, but when he wanted to push the envelope, we went back to the drawing board. We, we went to uh, Kugel components and I worked with Jerry Kugel there and, and he helped me with the ge- geometry and the engineering. And I kind of went crazy with the design and came up with something unique. And from there, the rest of the car kind of grew from that point. And we started, we, you know, we created some themes, different form language we're using for all the parts on the car uh, different details that went throughout the car. Like there's a little V shaped emblem that, uh, is, is everywhere you look on the car, you'll find some from there's from little tiny ones on the brake caliper covers to, uh, large one on the rear end to the, the switches that pop open the doors or, or V's. the, the upholstery has it throughout the upholstery. Um, it's kind of a, kind of a, a theme that you see throughout the car mm-hmm. um and and we just started applying these themes to everything in the car so most of the shapes in the car are some sort of a rounded rectangular shape um as a 55 chevy is <laughs> to begin with right. um and when you when you give yourself some of these um design um aesthetics to work with then everything starts to look like it belongs together. Um, so we kind of went crazy on everything else, but kept everything within the same theme. We did the majority of the work um, in-house. Now we didn't do, we don't do paint and body work here and uh, we didn't do the upholstery, but as far as fabrication, uh, assembly, wiring, all the mechanical stuff, all the, uh, you know, putting all the, the stuff together and trying to figure out how it all works that was all done here in-house okay so how do you ensure a complicated project like this actually emerges to what the vision was for it in the first place yeah well you start off with a rendering uh the rendering is right. kind of your roadmap, and it's mm-hmm. it gives you not only the theme of the car but it tells you and everybody else in the project 
this is what the car should look like more or less. Sometimes you might make a, a little change here or there, but it, it gives you the direction to go. Sure. And when people come up with an idea, you kind of test that against that rendering and go, well, does it fit the look of the car? If it does, let's do it. Why not? If yeah. it doesn't, then eh, let's, let's hang on to that idea for another car. Sure. I, and I guess from a planning and organizational standpoint, because there's a lot of moving parts and pieces, a lot of things going on probably at the same time. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think that's, you know, the organizational side, I think is, is interesting to me because um, I see that and I, I would think I would be overwhelmed by it, frankly. So <laughs> I'm wondering well, how you make sure that that project gets through smoothly. Sure. Yeah, it is. It, it's overwhelming, um, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, I take into account the different vendors, different, uh, you know, outside contractors, like we use mixed paint, we use uh, Gabe's custom upholstery. Evoed Industries did a lot of the machining and also the guys that we have here in-house. And I put together a spreadsheet and um, I, I have along one side, I have a list of everything I can think of that needs to be done on the car. Mm -hmm. And then across the top, I have month by month by month. And then I just kind of block out what gets done in each month. Now, with all these moving parts, it doesn't exactly line up the way I have it planned, but it helps kind of keep you focused to know, okay, well, we got the motor, you know, the motor is not going to arrive for another two months. Well, we can't really build a sheet metal in the engine compartment yet, but we can work on the rear end of the car. Or we could do some sheet metal work at the, on the interior or whatever. So, you know, I try to try to spreadsheet the whole project out and I, I follow that, but I don't, I don't follow it real tight. I just kind of, kind of use it to maintain where we are and, and, and kind of have a little bit of a plan as to what the next step is and how soon we need to get things done by the plater or the painter or whatever. Right. Are you mixing and matching the kind of the latest technology with the classic vehicles? Are you doing some of that? Oh yeah. Yeah. This car um, has a uh, iPad in the console that runs everything in the car from the HVAC to the stereo. I can open the doors. I can turn all the lights on, fire the car up. I can do anything you want on this iPad. And okay. it's wired into the car with a CAN bus wiring system, which without getting too deep into that is kind of like the next step in, in complicated wiring. It's what they use uh -huh. in modern, modern vehicles. Um, and it was a whole new thing for us to try to figure out this thing, but I can control everything off my iPhone or the iPad in the car or what have you. Now to integrate that into the car, you have the technical aspect, which you don't see any of that. The only thing you see is the iPad, but because the car is a fifties car, one of the things that bugs me is when people try to integrate something and they, or they don't bother to integrate. They just slap the iPad in there or whatever modern kind of thing. And it always ends up dating the car. So what I did was I created a little chrome bezel that goes around the iPad and the way it's integrated in there, it just becomes a black, you know, this black screen in the, in the, uh, in the console. And it looks like it grew there. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It, it, has that changed over the years for you as far as um, people looking for what, what I would call an authentic ride? In other words, this is kind of like it came from the factory as opposed to, I really want something that looks like it, but is very modern. Has, has that yeah. changed over the years? I, I think it has in the past few years. You know, we, we 
we had the smoothie era where everybody was trying to hide everything. And then we got super detailed and complicated and, and, you know, kind of steampunk with the, the builds. Now things are kind of heading this direction where we're doing a lot of modifications, but we're trying to do stuff that looks like maybe the factory did it. We, we just finished a, poor Bob, we just finished a 1964 Galaxy 500. And um, it's got a 427 single overhead cam motor in it. Ford made that engine uh, because they wanted to race it in NASCAR, but they weren't allowed to because it was too exotic. Mm -hmm. And so it was never in a production car, but we went through pains to, to put this in engine in there and make it look as if Ford installed it. Um, all the bracketry we made, we put stickers on it like the factory would have put on it. We did all kinds of, of um, parts under the hood that you would, wouldn't even notice unless you knew what a stock Galaxy looked like under hood. But mm -hmm. it, it all makes the car look like, oh, we bought that off the showroom floor, and that's just the way it is. So right. that was a fun project, especially after the 55. It was kind of fun to change directions a little bit instead of seeing how far we can go as a, almost like a concept car. We were going the other direction saying, how can we modify this car and make it better than it ever was, but not obvious that we've made it better. Mm -hmm. That's the way to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and the thing is with that car, that galaxy, it'll never go out of style. It'll always look great. Cause it's just this beautiful classic car and the changes that we made on it were subtle enough that they don't stand out as changes. They just make the whole package look better. Absolutely. So what do you see? I mean, what, what are you noticing now? And as we move forward over the next, say, five years, uh, what, what is the future of the market? What are some of the challenges and some of the opportunities that you're seeing? Well, I think, you know, whether you like it or not, um, electric is the future. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are trying to fight it. Um, I personally like gas-powered cars. I think they, they sound great and feel good. It's, you know, it's all, all that kind of stuff that adds that, that sense of the sound and the smells and the noise, you know, all that kind of stuff adds to what makes an old car cool. But uh, especially here in California where, you know, everything is that uh, they're worried about climate change even more so than other parts of the country. Um, I see electric entering the hot rod world. Um, and, and that being something that's going to be pretty important in the future. Uh, we just came back from SEMA and there was several companies offering crate motor packages. Ford just came out with their illuminator, uh, crate motor, uh, electric motor. Um, and there was, there was multiple companies out there with, uh, electric conversions for cars and that sort of thing. So I think that right now, uh, the prices are still, uh, pretty high, um, it's the opposite of the way a gas motor is a gas, a gas powered project car. The, the engine is really expensive and the gas tank is a couple hundred bucks. Hmm. And in a, in an electric car, the engine is relatively inexpensive, three, four, four, $5,000, but the batteries, the gas tank are tens of thousands of dollars. So right. unless you're taking, you know, unless you're taking a Tesla, you know, taking all the guts out of it, putting it in your other car, to buy the crate motor stuff is still pretty pricey. And, but I, I see that coming down as technology moves along, batteries get smaller and more compact. 
there'll be more options and eventually an electric crate motor will be the way most people end up going. Hey, speaking of gas powered vehicles, even though we were talking about electric vehicles, how does that uh, Chevy Bel Air, how does it run? Does it run nice? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a 540 inch Merlin uh, block, which is like a drag race kind of block uh, with, with Arius Hemi heads. So design wise, it's kind of like a big block Chevy block with Chrysler Hemi heads is kind of the best way to describe it. Um, yeah. Even though neither of those companies actually were involved. Uh, and then it's got two giant Garrett tur turbochargers. Um, it's, it's easily a 1400 horsepower motor. Um, we've got the boost turned way down to an easy, you know, I think we're making over 800 horsepower. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know we don't need to kill the kill Bob <laughs> or or the car, so <laughs> right, you, you know, um, yeah. But it's uh, with a couple of couple of tweaks to the program, it uh, it'll almost double in horsepower. So, but it's it's uh, it it idles nice, it runs nice, it drives drives pretty good. Uh, we haven't really driven it much, just kind of around here locally to try to, you know, you you have to do a shakedown and get the bugs out and all that kind of stuff, but. Uh, but yeah, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll go, man. It'll go fast. It sounds like a fun ride actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what is your uh, design philosophy and is this something that's changed over the years? In other words, it, I, I think the design does change and your philosophy probably changed subtly over time because, you know, obviously each era, each time period has its own kind of fashion, if you will. Have you tell me about your design philosophy and is it, is it universal? If you will, it doesn't matter what the time period is. Um, I I'd like to think it's universal. Um, yeah, basically for me, for a car to have a good design, it's got to work in what I call the four rings. So these are four circles you can imagine around the car at different mm -hmm. distances. The, the farthest one away is the across the parking lot kind of distance you know you see a car in the distance and and it's got the right stance it's got the right proportions and you you know there's something special about that car and you've got to go look at it and then when you get to that second ring which is about 20 feet away you need to reward that person for walking all that way right mm -hmm. so now you're seeing this gorgeous paint job the beautiful styling um, you're starting to see, you know, the wheel design and some of the details and that sort of thing. And you can see the overall package really well. And you want to step forward into the third ring, which is standing right next to the car. So you get to see all the little details. You look under the hood, you look in the engine compartment, all that. And you really get to see how it's put together. And then the fourth ring is really, um, it's the, the owner, the builder, the detailers, the ones, those are the guys that really get to appreciate that fourth ring. And that's either behind the wheel or underneath. When you can get behind the wheel and you start discovering all kinds of little details, like in this car, you know, we have um, starter buttons on the, on the uh, console. One says power and the other one says fire with an exclamation mark as if you're firing off a missile and that's what <laughs> fires up that big block you know okay. or you're underneath the car and you get to see the handcrafted mufflers which seamlessly blend into the exhaust pipes that sort of thing is is what you really only get if you can be kind of intimate and inside or underneath the car gotcha okay you know i want to push you a little bit on this because you know you mentioned you know in that that uh farthest circle 
the right mm -hmm. stance and the right proportions. To me, that sounds like it could be somewhat subjective. So what defines that for you? You know, when you go to these different stages of design and let's talk about stance and proportion, um, how do you define that for, for a vehicle? Well, um, for one thing, stance is, is, um, it's defined by the, this is going to get a little design nerdy here, but it's defined by the negative space underneath the car. Okay. So that's that, that, that gap of air between the rocker panel and the ground. Yeah. That can be a rectangular shape. It could be a wedge. If the front end of the car is a little lower then the back of the car is a little higher. It could be nothing. Some people like to build cars that set flat on the ground. When I look at those cars that are sitting completely flat on the ground, it looks broken to me. When I see a car that's got a little bit of a wedge shape, it looks like a, like a tiger ready to pounce. It looks like it's going to take off. That gives the car some motion even when it's sitting still. So I like a little bit of a wedge shape to the car. Um, in this, the case of this 55, we actually rebuilt the whole front sheet metal, the fenders and the hood. We made our own to get the front end to come down a little lower, to give it a little bit more aggressive stance. Mm. Um, so that's how I like to create the proportions that work but you know if you're doing say a custom you want the thing to be uh you know a half inch off the ground and the front a little higher than the back maybe or or what have you you know that's that's just depends on the, the style of car you're building kind of sure. dictates what the appropriate stance is right but there's always principles involved so you have principles that you kind of rely on to make those decisions. yeah yeah and a lot of decisions really are based on the the type of car, the theme of the build, the style, you know, if I'm building a, if I was going to design a, a pre-runner truck, the stance would be totally different than the stance on this 55 Chevy. Mm. You know, I, it, right. it just depends on what you're building as to what's appropriate. Absolutely. Well, you know what the music means. Our time is up. But I oh, really man, that was quick. Like, yeah, it does. <laughs> time flies. Thanks again to our guest, Chris Brown, who you can find at brownautodesign.com. And to SeaTech, dedicated to maximizing battery performance. Check out SeaTech at smartcharger.com. Speaking of websites, go to theshopmag.com, where you can access this podcast, plus all kinds of news and information specially designed for you, the specialty aftermarket shop. You can also subscribe to the monthly magazine and the daily e-newsletter while you're there. And don't forget, you can also find this podcast at your favorite platform, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Another quick note as we close out 2021, I will literally hand this mic off to AJ Hecht next month as he takes over podcast hosting duties in 2022. AJ is the shop's digital content editor and an aficionado of all things on wheels. You'll be in great hands next year. But just to warn you, I will guest host on occasion. So until then, adios, feliz Navidad y año nuevo, amigos.